everyone. Welcome to Millennium Live, a digital diary podcast. We sit down with the top C-suite executives and talk all things digital transformation. For the first time ever, Millennium Alliance is pivoting toward a virtual model, and we couldn't be more excited to engage with our community during this time. To start, we decided to bring a few members of our advisory board together for a virtual panel discussion featuring members from all our industries, including healthcare, cybersecurity, marketing, and technology. Together, we discussed leadership during the pandemic, where industries have crossover, what we can learn from each other, and how to truly be a leader during COVID-19. Thank you to all of you for joining us. Thank you to our panelists as well, Diana, Steve, and Craig. This is going to be an interesting conversation. Um, before we really get into it, I'd like to just have each of the panelists just introduce themselves um, so that the, the audience can have an idea about who they are and where they're coming from. Um, so if you just do that very briefly, and then we'll, we'll get right into this conversation. So I'll start with you, Diana. Good morning, everyone. So I'm Diana Burley. I am a professor at George Washington University here in, in uh, Washington, D.C. I also am executive director of a cybersecurity research institute called the Institute for Information Infrastructure Protection, uh, or the I3P, which is also based at George Washington University. Thank you, Diana. And then to Steve. Good morning, everyone. Steve Pasini here. I am CMO of On Demand CMO which is uh, an agency uh, that I currently own and operate and work with a lot of B2B types of uh, organizations. And uh, I'm also an adjunct professor at NYU's School of Professional Studies, uh, working with graduate marketing students. Thank you, Steve. And Craig. Good morning, everybody. My name is Craig Richardville, and I'm the Chief Information and Digital Officer for SCL Health. SCL Health is a multi-state uh, healthcare provider based out of the Denver, Colorado area. Thank you very much to all of you for agreeing to join us this morning. I, again, as Kara mentioned, my name is Pierre Vigilance. Um, I wear a couple of different hats. I'm a physician by training. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the public health sector, which is sort of part of the reason why I think this COVID-19 conversation was sort of landed in my lap. Um, I was the health commissioner for Washington, D.C. for a few years, health commissioner in Baltimore County for a little bit. And then I came out of there and did some um, academic work with George Washington University, where Diana is, at the School of Public Health there. And uh, now I'm doing some independent consulting work. So uh, this is a busy time. It's a busy time for all of us. There's a lot been going on. And I wanted to kick this conversation off by asking our panelists to just reflect a little bit on how... COVID has specifically impacted your sectors. So for you, Diana, that would be obviously the cyber cybersecurity space, for Steve, the, the, the uh, marketing space, and for Craig, obviously, the, the healthcare space, but particularly healthcare IT. So if I could start with, um, with Craig this time um, to talk a little bit about how specifically COVID-19 has impacted your operations and what you've had to do to stay up to speed and stay ahead of this curve. Great, yeah, thank you, Pierre. Uh, in terms of the disruption of, of COVID-19, uh, it certainly has changed the dynamics of how we interact and engage with our providers and with our patients. For us, we have a, a very heavy focus uh, on COVID-19 uh, as it started to come out in March for us and, and closed down here for the, the last uh, almost two months. 
uh, what we had to do was reshift our priorities, focus on the public health sector and the populations in terms of uh, keeping people healthy and well, especially those who were either persons under investigation or people who were testing positive. So we had to change the way that we delivered care. We had to defer a lot of uh, what we would call uh, non-emergent care. So things that could be put off or uh, that some might call elective uh, surgeries and those kinds of things have gotten moved out. Um, and it's been you know, probably about a 60% hit in terms of our uh, financials for the last two months. Now we're in the process of slowly starting to come out of that. We still have kind of a throttle upon our work. We're still focusing very heavy on ensuring that there's not a research of um, COVID-19 while at the same time trying to maintain the business. And as an employer with being a large employer in a multi-state environment, uh, we're going through a lot of the same struggles that uh, many others are as well in terms of identifying those that are essential employees, those that are non-essential employees, and really trying to do our best as, a, as an employer to take care of those during this time where volumes have shifted to the point where we start to come back out of this. Steve, as you think about this from a marketing perspective, and I know now that you're with your own agency, you have um, some different clients uh, than you used to in the past, but how is this impacting your business and particularly the clients that you have in the financial services industry and uh, telecom? Yes, thank you, Pierre. Um, fortunately, we have not been greatly impacted uh, due to the COVID-19 crisis, primarily because of the categories that uh, our clients happen to be in, which is financial services, tech, telco, as you mentioned, as well as um, we have some special needs schools. Uh, those are probably the special needs schools are the ones that are most impacted. But generally speaking, uh, most of the clients' messaging has shifted significantly. And what we've been counseling them on, the message shift and the theme of those messages, needs to be one of more wrapped around help and uh, be specific as to how are you helping your customers and clients through this crisis. Um, so be transparent, be forthcoming with that help and be specific. Uh, you can't just, just say, hey, we're here for you, give us a call. So I think that uh, the tone of those messages then has to be one of empathy and kindness and, um, and, and really being there to help them. So this is not really a time to worry about your bottom line. This is a time to take care of the needs of your customers. And if you take care of the needs of your customers today, um, they will take care of you later on. And so that's really what we've been talking to our customers about and, um, and trying to work through that, uh, this, this crisis with that messaging platform. Got you. And that's obviously an externally facing piece of how your businesses, because you do a lot of business to business work, how the businesses that you serve impact their, um, their customers externally. But Diana, your work, um, deals, I, I think it's fair to say a little bit more with sort of some of the policies and procedures related to use of technology within a business or within an enterprise um, and the security elements that are important to maintaining confidentiality, appropriate levels of security, etc. How has cybersecurity uh, been impacted by this pandemic? Yeah, so it's been a challenge and it's really created, uh, you know, what, what I think of as a perfect storm where we have um, a, a very quick uh, quick and, and large-scale change and shift so that there are many people who are now working and connecting to the internal networks but working from home 
So how do we make sure that those connections are safe and that the devices and the environments that the individuals have are safe? We also have a lot of people who perhaps didn't have the experience or, or the understanding or the knowledge. And so it's trying to make sure that, that we can get them up to speed in terms of knowing what they should and should not do, both in terms of connecting with their workplaces, but also recognizing that many of us have now shifted to doing basic things that we used to do in person, like grocery shopping. We've now started to do that online. And so we have populations who are just not familiar with all of the vulnerabilities and potential ways that they can be exposed either directly um, by, by pro providing information to, to would-be adversaries or scammers, um, or indirectly even by allowing people within their households to now have access to confidential data or information because they're sharing devices um, or they're speaking and having meetings and they're talking about confidential information um, out loud and, and people uh, who perhaps shouldn't hear it are. So there are a number of different complex issues that, that we are all having to juggle in terms of our, our security and privacy of, of data and information as we navigate this crisis. And I want to stay with you, Diana, for a second here to sort of pivot to this next question, which actually relates to another part of the hat that you wear, which is the education space, right? This whole piece about K through 12 and cities are struggling with where kids who are now out of school, who don't have access to um, adequate internet access, where can they, where can they get this? And, and having them level up as well. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that some of your education partners are facing with respect to access? Absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, in the K-12 space, public education is a right of every citizen. And so as school districts tried to transition to an online learning environment, the first thing that they had to do was to ensure that all of the children could actually access that environment. So many school districts had to distribute technology. They actually had to send out laptops into to homes. They had to ensure that there, were, um, that there were access. So they had to do mobile hotspots and making sure that, that people could actually get onto the internet. And this is completely outside of how well somebody can access it, right? Because we all know that just giving somebody technology or creating an access point doesn't necessarily mean that, that you can use it or certainly that you can use it efficiently. And so, so there are a number of challenges for the students and for the teachers. And we often don't think about the struggles that the teachers may have in transitioning to an online learning type of environment as well. But, but that's very real. And so we have to think about what is what are we able to do in terms of access and equity but also what does this really mean for the quality of the education and the level of engagement that uh, that our teachers and students are able to achieve and sorry i keep looking down because i'm scribbling down notes on these great points you're making i wanted to pivot around to this the, the newness that teachers and students are having to learn is also a newness that some patients and doctors are having to learn. I think, Craig, in your space, the telehealth space is not too dissimilar from the education space in this regard, right? You've got a um, new way of doing business, if you will, that is not so new for, for healthcare. You've been doing telehealth for a little bit. Can you talk to us a little bit about how your telehealth practice has had to hockey stick up in this last few weeks or last couple months. Yeah, that's a great point. I think it's one of those things that 
as we continue to, to evolve as, as separate verticals or separate industries, we see how much um, there is that overlaps in between them all. And for us, we've had telehealth or telemedicine or virtual care uh, out there for nearly 10 years, but it really didn't take off. It was just kind of sitting there dormant, waiting for uh, us to be able to move ourselves as an industry and as the patients to be able to accept this as a way to communicate back and forth with their providers. And for us, what the crisis has done, it's really accelerated that. We, we had um, somewhere around 50 to 55 visits in February that were virtual. And last month we were over 12,000. So it's becoming a very normal way now for people very quickly. And it's taken some of the things that Diana talked about, that people are doing more things online and now just kind of pivoting over into healthcare and being able to do it that way. That creates for us, I think, a great opportunity, uh, number one, in terms of uh, trying to reduce the cost of healthcare, uh, increase the access, um, uh, be able to remove some of the social determinants that may prevent people from having access into healthcare. It really has, has for us, uh, um, really, I think, created a, a great opportunity. On the same note, there were plenty of regulations. You know, we're the highest uh, regulated industry. So many things were relaxed for a period of time in terms of what tools we could use, payment of providing these types of services. And I think we'll find ourselves somewhere in the middle of where we were very restricted before to uh, now there's, it's, it's pretty much an open access and some of the stuff that was talked about with security, those weren't really relaxed, but they really kind of, people took a, uh, I guess, kind of a little more of a, uh, uh, a relaxed view of how they would want to move a lot of those things home. So we had providers working from home, patients now communicating openly from home, where there were people potentially in the environment that wouldn't be there in a private setting. So we'll, we'll harden those things. We'll continue to come out of this, I think, with a very more secure uh, and very um, uh, easily uh, uh, accessible tool set for our patients. Right, I think that we, people may take for granted some of the um, back door, the stuff, the back room stuff that has to go into an effective and appropriate telehealth platform um, because of the security related to the types of information that is transmitted over that platform. That is not information you want other people necessarily to be able to access. And now we're doing all this stuff from home. It changes things a bit. Yes. Steve, as you think about this, and, uh, and I know you don't have a health client specifically, but I know you are in the education space a bit. Um, but but being in marketing, you're 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 a messaging oriented person. You're an influencer. You're somebody who tries to change how people interact with various things. What do you see as as some of the opportunities um, from the for, on a, from a marketing perspective and for particular types of company? Um, as Diana, as you listen to Diana and Craig talk about the education and the health space and your own experience with the education space. Right. What do you see from a marketing perspective as potential opportunities here? Yeah, let me just address the, uh, the education space uh, quickly. Um, I'm sort of in a unique position being an instructor at NYU, but also having a freshman, a college freshman. So I get to see both sides of that uh, equation. And uh, one delivering the experience, and Diana mentioned it, is like we tend to underestimate um, the instructor's ability or comfort with the technology 
we tend to to be older, uh, maybe baby boom, Gen X generation, and and we're not necessarily digital natives. I often call myself a Luddite, but uh, and I'm so I'm not an early adopter on most of this stuff. But um, this has forced many of us to accelerate our learning and, and get comfortable with the technology and embrace the technology. And I have to say, I shared this story with you guys earlier that uh, this was a totally uh, uncharted and untested environment. And we've just flicked the switch and uh, we all went to a virtual environment. And so one of the things now that you're in a virtual environment is how do you maintain that engagement with your students? Uh, we talk about pedagogy quite a bit. And what are those best practices? How do you deliver your curriculum? How do you make sure that your students are engaged and following you? And so we talk about synchronistic versus asynchronistic and what is the best way to do that. And, and with all, within all of that, how do you um, maintain the connection to your students? And in my case, I have some students who are dialing internationally. So there's time zone issues. So there's brought with issues, but uh, for the most part, we were able to overcome that. Uh, and in the case from my son's perspective, uh, he seems to have made that transition a lot better than I thought he would, um, having lived on campus and now having, uh, having to come home and, and stay with mom and dad and continue his education. Uh, he's done a good job in maintaining that discipline and, uh, and being organized. So I'm proud of him for that, making that transition, which is what I found with my students as well. I think it's uh, difficult situations. Many of them are uh, a long way from home. They're cooped up in their apartments, may even live off campus, and, uh, and they're scared, just uh, like many of us are. So they've been able to stay focused and engaged and, uh, and complete their studies. So it's been uh, terrific from, from that perspective. And then you had asked another question there about from a business perspective, the opportunities. I think the opportunity is that... Um, you know, we are all social beings and in, in, in lieu of uh, personal connections and meeting with people on an everyday basis, uh, these virtual meetings have become a great substitute to, uh, to that. And uh, some of my clients are moving from this in-person conference space to a virtual uh, environment. And it's a great way to continue to maintain engagement. And engagement is a big word in, in marketing these days. And video is a great way to maintain a connection. You can still see people. Um, you still have that eye contact with individuals. And, uh, and you want to maintain uh, the ability to engage them and to deliver valuable content. Um, and, and that's what it really is about. Marketing is always adding value to the equation. And so uh, look at it from the receiver's perspective what are you doing to add value and knowledge and helping them through this crisis got you all right so we've talked a little bit about the impact of the disruption um, on each of your industries we just talked a bit about how you transitioned into the space and what what that transition has meant uh, for each of you um, and the opportunities that steve was just highlighting i want to See if we can turn a bit to maybe a slightly inappropriate conversation. And I say that not to have Kara shut down the entire conversation from her sort of control room, but um, to, the idea of reopening from a public health perspective is scary to me, right? So my, my take on that um, is, uh, I'm a solicited, of course, but it is that, you know, we are talking about 
coming out of hibernation a little bit, a little too soon. Um, and we're going to find out just how soon that is when we open things up and case counts start to climb again before the second wave that's talked about this fall. But that all being the case and potentially reality for us again in a few weeks, uh, people and states are talking about reopening and coming back to normalcy. What, given the changes that have happened, um, and I want to start with Craig again, um, given the changes that have happened, you went from 55 telehealth visits all the way up to what you say, more than 12,000. Um, as you reopen, uh, how do you see that thawing or that coming out of hibernation happening? And, and as you, from an IT perspective, how, does, how do things change for you? Or is it just business as usual and you just sort of keep up with what the business operation is trying to, is trying to uh, maintain or bring back to, to, full, to full flow? Yeah, thanks for, <clears throat> thanks for the question, Pierre. There are so many different levers that will impact how we move forward. We actually had a senior management team uh, yesterday and we were going through trying to project how we should start becoming out of this, some of the different uh, regulations and scrutiny that is, is under you know, us of how far we can or how fast we can come out, uh, knowing that we still have to plan for the, a potential surge that could occur either now or in the fall or at different times. And we range from when we would get back to what would be considered a new normal from um, October of this year up through May of next year, as some even said never. You know, the, the whole different situation of how we come out of here when you look at the services that we provide and how we provide it. So from a technology perspective, you're seeing a lot of the foundational elements um, still be in place. A lot of the heightened aspects of, of cybersecurity that was mentioned. But now we're starting to move more into that digital aspect of what we do whether that is moving more into robotic process automation to be able to make ourselves more efficient, uh, kind of move into more of a digital workforce, to over to things that are chatbots that will create that kind of conversation for people as well. And I think we found out when you look at all the different people that were projecting things that were going to be happening with this virus, how it changed from day to day and week to week of, you know, how big and small that was going to be, how wide or, or narrow. And so I think we've got a lot more work to do on the data side as well and be able to do a lot more with our analytics aspects and the additional insights that we want to be able to bring and better predict what's going to be happening in the future. The virtual space is a space that will be here to stay. We're starting to see new normals kind of coming to maybe somewhere between 15 to 25 percent as we're starting to get volumes back into a, a more of a steady state of growth. Uh, kind of sticking in that space. And again, as I mentioned, that provides a lot of opportunity that we uh, didn't have to, uh, yesterday in terms of contacting and staying engaged with our patients, but also provides a lot of competition. Now people outside of our physical geographics can come into our space uh, virtually. You could say, you know, the Amazons of the world, those that don't have a lot of physical presence that end up impacting a lot of industries. I think for us, we were kind of heading down that with retail and technology companies coming in. What uh, the crisis did for our industry, I believe, is we kind of disrupted ourselves now. Uh, without those kinds of uh, different uh, uh, outsides coming in, we've done it ourselves and been able to come out with what's going to be a different way to provide that kind of service. So I guess I'm, I, I'm always an optimist, so I want to see this thing coming out, but it will be much different. No one can define exactly what that looks like. I do think it will lead us a lot more into value type of care 
and Pierre, I know you understand that, um, certainly in the public health sector and your medical background, as opposed to the volume side, because making money on the volume is not going to be the way that this industry is going to be able to maintain itself moving forward. It's going to be more about the preventive care, the maintenance, and we're starting to see a little bit of that coming out with some of the collateral damage that has taken place when people were not able to see their provider for two months because they weren't in the you know, in, in the emergent uh, type of an, a category. And now there's things that, that should have been done to prevent or detect, you know, uh, cancer and other things uh, that were delayed and put off. And I think we'll have some recovery that'll come out of that as well. But it, I think it'll move us more into that population health as an industry of how we should take care of the populations that we serve. That's great. Thank you for that, for that response. And so as you think about this, Diana, and you live in a world of, of and any any space that has the word security and it means that there's risk right so there's um, something there that could go wrong is going wrong is about to go wrong and you you want managers and leaders and executives to to be able to mitigate that as much as possible with with the change that we're going that's going on here and what Craig is referring to um, what do you see as the major challenges related to reopening from a cybersecurity perspective? Are they, are they any different than the changes that have gone on with this transition into the online space that we've witnessed? You know, the, the changes that, or the challenges really aren't sufficiently different. I mean, it's just going to be an acceleration of scope. Um, but I, and I really want to key on the word that he just mentioned was value. Because I think that that is really something that we're going to pay a lot more attention to in terms of the workforce. And so as we think about the future of work and we think about what automation is going to do for us and the types of, of questions that we ask around um, employment and who we bring into our organizations, that word value is really going to play a tremendously important role as we move forward, perhaps more than some of the other um, things that we might think about because we will have a much more virtualized um, uh, workforce population and we're really going to be thinking about that risk profile whether we're specifically talking about cybersecurity risk or just risk in the marketplace in general but it's how much value are we able to achieve from the, the design of the different processes that we use for future um, work and workforce engagement, how much value are we able to get out of the employees and thinking about the trade-offs between automated systems, semi-automated systems, and human systems. And you know, all of those calculations are simply going to have to scale and, and scope in a much more rapid pace than perhaps we were uh, anticipating. But the questions are still the same. We've been talking about these issues for a while. We just didn't think that we had to come to any kind of decision points anytime soon, um, but we do. But I love the optimism and I agree. I think that this is an opportunity for us to, to really roll up our sleeves and engage. And one last thing, and it's something that we don't talk about often when we talk about universities, um, because we focus on the educational aspects, but the research, that we are conducting in the institutions, whether it's research related to public health or it's research related to the future of work and how these systems can be integrated and leveraged, I think is going to be increasingly important for society as we move forward. And so, you know, 
as bad as the news is, and as much as we don't like listening to the news, the one thing that always brings me joy is when I hear lay people talking about models and basic assumptions of models and science, and they haven't gotten it quite right, but the fact that, that you know, society is beginning to talk about research and sound research and science, I think is, is a wonderful opportunity for us to really move, uh, move all of us forward. Excellent, excellent. Steve, I know you sort of, as you listen to this, and, and I know that some of your clients didn't necessarily see a, a downswing or negative impact as a result of this, but as they, as they think about coming out and as you talk to other clients about reopening and what the opportunities are there, what are the types of things from a marketing perspective that you are um, suggesting to them that they bring, not only along this value framework that both Craig and Diana have spoken to, but maybe some other things that we might not have thought about. Yeah, but uh, before I answer that, I just really want to dovetail on uh, some of the themes that Diana was touching on. And, and I really think that there is just going to be this economic and psychological hangover from all of this that uh, though uh, you, you raised it earlier, we're, op we're starting to open um, but I think people are going to be hesitant uh, to uh, embrace that. The, you know, the headline is that there are people who are sort of violating or pushing the boundaries and, and anxious to get back to uh, their normal lives. But uh, I think the vast majority of people are not necessarily in favor of, of opening too quickly. Um, and we're talking about people's health here. So it's a very serious matter. And I think it'll take a long time for people to get comfortable with going back uh, on a bus or on a subway or on an airplane. And so it's going to take a, a long time for us to get comfortable. And we have to make sure the safeguards are in place in order for us to um, return to some of those um, pre-COVID-19 uh, crisis behaviors. So, um, and also I think that, you know, something that Craig said that uh, crises have a tendency to accelerate what is already happening. And there was this total digital transformation going on in the economy, which is great, but there's going to be some laggards and people are going to be displaced. And so what, is, what are we going to do as a country uh, after this moment, take a pause and reevaluate what we've done, where are we going and how are we going to achieve um, our, our next set of objectives as a society and hopefully to raise all boats. Uh, it's something that uh, is something that uh, certainly weighs on my mind, and hopefully we take advantage of this opportunity. So, a word that we talked about in our prior conversation that came up in this one a bit earlier on is the word equity, and this, uh, this notion of being able to figure out how to get everybody to see over the proverbial fence, meaning everyone doesn't need the same platform, everyone doesn't need the same height stool because we're at different heights. I might need a slightly different stool than Dan and Craig, et cetera, to be able to see over that fence. Um, and those approaches are approaches that need to be very mindful and intentional. And I think it was you just now, Steve, mentioned the fact that um, the acceleration of things that were already going on, it's also the deceleration to some extent of some things that have already been going on. We see these inequities in outcomes in different communities um, and populations. So I wanted to see if we could, in the last sort of 10 minutes of our conversation, talk a little bit about how um, 
when we talk about value and we talk about equity and we talk about opportunity, how can we, in these three sectors or these three, four sectors that are represented, say, in this conversation and beyond, look for the intersections to create value, but at the same time, keep an equity lens firmly focused on that, on that intersection so we're not leaving certain people out. Uh, because I think um, people who didn't have access to broadband or didn't have access to at-home computers, et cetera, are folks who aren't working from home. So, and I know that we're not the economics and policy and tech directors of the nation, but still, from your perspectives, what are the kinds of things that we can or should be doing to improve the equity element of things, regardless of sector? And I'll start with you, Steve, and then I'll come to you, Craig and Dan, I'll ask you to close this out. Yeah, I, I think that uh, you, you touched on it, the access to broadband um, connections is critical. I mean, the, the world is moving to this digital world. Um, knowledge is king. And if you don't have access to that knowledge, then you're going to be left behind. And, and it really starts with uh, the K through 12s. And so uh, the public school systems need to be properly funded in order for um, these, these young citizens to be able to compete in a global economy. And that's really what we're dealing with is a global economy. And how are we preparing our next generation to be the leaders of the world? And, and without that, that connection to the internet and uh, educational opportunities, then we do ourselves a grave disservice. So I think that uh, you know, the, the uh, private and public uh, sectors need to come together and come up with a solution which is going to benefit all of us. Craig, all right. Craig from, from your side of the equation, how do you, how do you guys look at this, um, particularly as you're gonna be having more and more of your patients taking advantage of some of your um, tech-related um, interface opportunities? Yeah, it is a, <clears throat> this certainly is a little more of a normalizer for us. So as we have always been trying to tackle a lot of the different social determinants of people having access to and receiving uh, health care. I think this aspect of migrating over into the digital aspects, the virtual aspect of it, and hopefully a one day we'll kind of remove those words. It'll just be just the way that you do receive and access care, just like uh, when you go shopping or do banking today. So for me, I, I think in our industry, it, it really is going to allow us to have access to people that we didn't have those that access to before, those that might be considered uh, underserved or those that uh, might be more in a rural um, area or those that may have had transportation, like I said, other social determinants that prevented them from getting access to care. Now that we've removed some of those geographic boundaries, uh, this will this digital aspect will allow us to be able to provide treatment and care and access to our professionals that they wouldn't have had as easily in the past. We'll have a lower no-show rate. We'll have a lot more, I think, proactive and preventive uh, routine maintenance going into place, uh, similar to how you take care of your vehicle. Uh, we will be able to monitor and be able to provide uh, access to people at the right time. I, I like your analogy on different heights and that kind of stuff because it is getting to be a lot more uh, personalized and individualized with how we are uh, providing that. It's not one size fits all. This has really given us the, uh, the opportunity and it's us, up to us. And, uh, and I think somebody mentioned before, a sender and a receiver with communication, it's the same thing here. 
we need to have the receiver of the services be able to be acceptable and adopt this new method of doing it. I think obviously as we uh, migrate over the next you know, decade or two, this will become certainly something that many of our children or grandchildren would not even know any different than how it kind of reminds me of a, an old thing when I bought my oldest son his new car, he sat in there, he's like, Dad, how do you, how do you adjust the car seat? You know, and it's like, there's a bar underneath you, pick it up and you slide it back and forth because he's always used to automated seats. You know, it just kind of goes back to things that uh, we have seen and migrated towards. And I love the aspect of um, being able to start to minimize some of the inequity and some of the disparities of care that we provide to our communities because those that in many cases that needed the most didn't have the access to it and this will give us that opportunity. Excellent, excellent, thank you. Diana, um, the, the equity piece from an education. And, and actually, I'd love to hear your take on the, the you mentioned the future of work and, um, and the workforce. So whatever angle you'd like to uh, take this from, uh, what's, what's your, as we lean forward into this equity space, what are you thinking? Yeah, so thank you for that. And I'm gonna start with a public health analogy, right? Because, because that's where it all started. Um, in public health, you often talk about treating the whole patient. It's not just about what presents when they come in or why they're coming in, but it's what is happening at home? What are they eating? What is their, your mental situation? What, what is all, all of these different aspects combined? And I, I think that that's really how we have to think about this from a future of work perspective, um, because we have to think about the whole person it's no longer acceptable to just say, well, we're providing access to technology when the person is in our workspace. And so therefore we don't have to worry about what they're dealing with at home or in their home environments. We don't have to worry about how they are transporting from, from that home environment to, to the workspace. Um, because the reality is that for many of us, home will be an integral part of our workspaces forever in some percentage, right? And so you can't isolate. You think about education and you think about the K-12 systems and the challenge has not just been about getting technology to our students and making sure that they could access the systems, but it's also recognizing that for many of our lower socioeconomic status students, school is where they ate. Home is an insecure place in terms of access to food, perhaps access to safety in the higher education space. We've had, a, we've had to wrestle with the reality that many of our students did not have a home to go back to. And so when we said that the dorms were now closed, but we're gonna put everything online so that you can learn online from home, we had to face the reality that many of them didn't have a home. And so what do we do then? And so I think that as we move forward as a society across the sectors, we have to really focus on public-private partnerships that allow us to move forward policies and procedures that look at an integrated whole of person such that we are able to address all of these different issues which ultimately get to this question of equity, this question of access, this question of value and of contribution. And so I, I think that it provides us with a wonderful opportunity 
to really address these questions that perhaps were being addressed in isolation in different sectors or in different ways by different companies or, or agencies. Um, but to say, you know, now it's time for us to come together and recognize that in our future, that integration, that partnership has to occur um, for the good of all within our society. Excellent. So thank, thank you for that. And I think that's a, it's a good place for us to sort of tie this all up because I think in, in, in each of our spaces, uh, we're talking about working not only with the individual, but also with the communities that that individual is a part of, um, but not just about that individual as they come into our space, but also in relation to how they may have interacted in other spaces or how they may have been impacted by other spaces. So your health is obviously impacted by things that you are influenced to eat, the exercise you're influenced maybe to do or not, um, how you access care and when you access that care, how you're taken care of in that setting. Um, your education status impacts your income levels, which impacts a number of different things, including your zip code, which might impact your access to technology. And all of these things sort of come together to make um, create certain opportunities for individuals and communities, but they also present opportunities for the businesses and the sectors that have to interact with individuals uh, to do differently than they may have done. And I think it's been really unfortunate to see the highlighting of the disparities that we've been talking about to some extent. Um, I think that these are things that have been known to exist for a long period of time, and now they're really coming to bear. Um, the future of work was looked at as being sometime in the future, but COVID sort of brought it right to us. And, you know, opportunity is a swinging rope, right? It's a swinging rope and you can either watch it swing or you can grab it and use it, right? And we are in a place now where we have to grab it and use it to create the value that we've been talking about on this call and um, to create these opportunities to improve outcomes by providing people with what they need, taking that equity lens and using that and messaging in a way to not only our business partners, but also to the people that they serve, that we are here to take care of them. We want to work with them, not just for them. And we want to be able to set them up for success in a way that isn't just about the now, but also into the future, which is going to be slightly different. So I really appreciate each of you for your for your commentary this morning. Thank you, Diana Burley from GW, Steve Fancini, and Craig Richardville. Um, my name is Pierre Vigilance. Thank you, Pierre. Yes, thank you, Pierre. We always value our board's insight, and we are thrilled to announce that this episode is actually a part of our advisor board panel series. Next up we'll hear from another round of board members on post-COVID-19 and how each industry will get ready for the new normal. Stay tuned, and thank you for listening.